Welcome to the March 1st, 2022 Annals of Internal Medicine podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Annals Editor-in-Chief, and I'll be giving you a quick overview of the new articles you will find if you go to annals.org. Over the last 18 months, there has been intense focus on COVID-19 vaccination, but we need to remember that there are many recommended vaccines. On February 18th, Annals published the CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices 2022 Recommended Adult Immunization Schedule. In addition to including COVID-19 vaccination, other changes from last year's recommendations relate to zoster, pneumococcal, and hepatitis B vaccines. This year's schedule is particularly important because many adults, like many children, have fallen behind on routine vaccinations due to the COVID-19 pandemic. The 2022 schedule includes a new feature, an appendix that lists all the contraindications and precautions to each of the vaccines listed in the schedule. As for other changes, the Zoster vaccine is now recommended for use in persons aged 19 years and older who are or will be immunodeficient or immunosuppressed because of disease or therapy. The pneumococcal vaccine recommendation is simplified and includes all adults over age 65 while the hepatitis B vaccine recommendation is more inclusive, it stops short of universal recommendation for adults. The 2022 schedule is also approved by the director of the CDC and by the American College of Physicians, the American Academy of Family Physicians, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, the American College of Nurse Midwives, the American Academy of Physician Associates, and the Society for Healthcare Epidemiology of America. The authors note that physicians should pay careful attention to the details found in the vaccine notes section, as these notes clarify who needs what vaccine when and at what dose. Next is an article that reports a cross-sectional study that found that COVID-19 patient zip codes may be associated with clinical outcomes. The researchers found that patients who resided in high-vulnerability neighborhoods presented to the hospital with more severe illness and more often required intensive care compared to those in low-vulnerability neighborhoods. Differences in COVID-19 illness severity and outcomes, including rates of hospitalization and mortality, have been demonstrated to be related to patient race, ethnicity, and location of residence. The study authors previously found that U.S. counties with higher levels of social vulnerability or disadvantage based on socioeconomic status, housing, and other factors experience greater COVID-19 incidence and mortality. Researchers from the University of Michigan studied health data for 2,678 patients hospitalized with COVID-19 at 38 Michigan hospitals to determine whether COVID-19 hospitalization outcomes were related to neighborhood-level social vulnerability, independent of patient-level clinical factors. Patient data was assessed in combination with the zip code-linked social vulnerability index, a composite measure of social disadvantage. The authors found that patients living in high-vulnerability zip codes had lower pulse oximetry readings and higher respiratory rates upon admission compared to patients living in less vulnerable zip codes. Once admitted, they were more likely to receive mechanical ventilation, experience acute organ dysfunction, and develop acute organ failure even after adjusting for individual patient clinical characteristics, suggesting that neighborhood social disadvantage effects observed were independent of individual level factors related to patients' age and pre-existing comorbid conditions. The authors noted that once patients were hospitalized, however, they did not experience differences in hospital mortality or discharge disposition. 
The authors suggest policies targeting socially vulnerable neighborhoods to improve access to COVID-19 testing, treatment, and vaccination, as well as to identify and address issues that contribute to such disparities. Extensive documentation for reimbursement combined with low electronic health record usability contributes to high rates of physician burnout and job dissatisfaction. To combat this, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services recently made optional the history and physical examination elements of the physician note. The new documentation requirements also streamline the logic in applying evaluation and management visit codes based on medical decision-making to facilitate less ambiguous synthesis of the complexity of problems, complexity of data, and risk for complications in each visit. Researchers from the University of Pennsylvania conducted an observational study of 303,547 advanced practice providers and physicians across 389 organizations. The authors collected provider-level measures of weekly E&M billing and measures of electronic health record use between September 2020 and April 2021 from the EPIC system Signal Data Warehouse. The authors analyzed eight measures of E&M visit volume and seven measures of electronic health record use to determine factors including the proportion of weekly evaluation and management visits, total weekly new and established evaluation and management patients, total active time per visit spent in the electronic health record, and electronic health record documentation length. The authors observed an overall increase in new and established patient evaluation and management visits billed to levels four and five, and a decrease in visits billed at level three. However, the policy responses across specialties differed, with some specialties demonstrating substantially larger shifts in billing. The authors also observed no overall change in time spent in the electronic health record or documentation length. According to the authors, their findings suggest that the effects of the policy have thus far been limited to modifications of billing practices, despite the explicit intent to simplify reimbursement and reduce documentation burden. They also note that the observed changes in billing practice without meaningful improvement in measures of electronic health record burden highlights a continued opportunity to identify and scale practices that more directly address salient pain points of electronic health record usability. In an accompanying editorial, Dr. Christine Sinsky argues that note length and active electronic health record time is not a perfect proxy of physician burden, and the reason for a lack of change in active electronic health record time and note length cannot be known from this study. The editorial suggests that further studies on the quality of notes along with qualitative interviews of physicians are needed to help determine whether cognitive burden was reduced and why documentation time and note length may have not have been affected as intended. Next is a modeling study that estimates that overdiagnosis or the finding of tumors that may never have progressed or caused harm during a woman's lifetime occurs in about 15% of screen-detected cancers. The U.S. Preventive Services Task Force and other organizations cite overdiagnosis as one of the potential harms associated with mammography screening for breast cancer. Therefore, knowledge about overdiagnosis is critical for supporting shared decision-making about screening. However, the risk for breast cancer overdiagnosis in contemporary screening programs remains uncertain, with the most widely cited estimates reaching about 30%. Researchers from Duke University and the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center studied data from the Breast Cancer Surveillance Consortium facilities 
to estimate the rate of breast cancer overdiagnosis in contemporary mammography practice for a cohort including 35,986 women, 82,677 mammograms, and 718 breast cancer diagnoses. To estimate overdiagnosis, the authors considered a cohort of women whose parameters for disease natural history were given by the best-fitting parameter combinations and who had annual or biennial screening starting at age 50 years until age 74 years or death from a cause unrelated to breast cancer, whichever occurred first. They modeled the competing mortality risk on the basis of a published age cohort model for a 1971 birth cohort. The researchers found that in a program of biennial screening of women aged 50 to 74 years, which corresponds to the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force recommendations for average risk women, approximately one in seven screen detected cancers would be overdiagnosed. Increasing the screening interval to annual screening did not seem to affect this number. In an accompanying editorial, Drs. Katrina Armstrong and Felipe Marcondes say that these findings may help women who are considering having mammography screening better understand the risk of overdiagnosis. Given that approximately 7 in 1,000 women will be diagnosed with invasive or non-invasive breast cancer on the basis of a screening mammogram, women should be told that approximately 1 in 1,000 women who undergo mammography will be found to have a cancer that would never have caused them a problem. Assuming that about 60% of the 280,000 cases of breast cancer diagnosed in the United States each year are found through mammography screening, eliminating overdiagnosis could spare 25,000 women the cost and complications of unnecessary treatment. Throughout the pandemic, Annals has been publishing recommendations related to COVID-19 from the American College of Physicians. We just published ACP's fifth and final update of recommendations for the use of remdesivir in hospitalized patients with COVID-19. The updated recommendations are based on a review of the most up-to-date published data available on the benefits and harms of remdesivir and whether those benefits and harms vary by symptom duration, disease severity, and treatment duration. The paper was developed by the Scientific Medical Policy Committee of the ACP. The ACP's final updated recommendations target patients who will most benefit from the use of remdesivir. The ACP advises that clinicians, one, consider remdesivir for five days to treat hospitalized patients with COVID-19 who do not require mechanical ventilation or ECMO. Two, consider extending the use of remdesivir to 10 days to treat hospitalized patients with COVID-19 who require mechanical ventilation or ECMO within a five-day course. And three, avoid initiating remdesivir to treat hospitalized patients with COVID-19 who are already on mechanical ventilation or ECMO at the time of hospitalization. The next article also concerns clinical guidelines. The objective of the authors, who are leaders in guideline development, was to develop an extension of the widely used Guidelines International Network McMaster Guideline Development Checklist and tool to better integrate the development of guidelines with the development of guideline-based quality indicators and performance measures. They used a mixed methods approach that incorporated input from a systematic review, an expert workshop, and a survey of experts to iteratively refine an extension of their checklist. The result is a 40-item checklist extension addressing integration of quality assurance and improvement into guideline development. The checklist will be used in a forthcoming initiative from the European Commission. In the accompanying editorial, Drs. Helen Burston and Eric Schneider write, quote, Given significant investments in guideline and quality measurement development, 
the specialty society community and quality improvement scientists should be prepared to assist with the evaluation and validation of this new and vital integrated approach, end quote. The U.S. FDA and authorities in several other countries have authorized the antiviral nermotrelivir ritinavir, better known and more easily pronounced as Paxlovid, for the treatment of patients with mild to moderate COVID-19 at high risk of progression to severe disease and with no requirement for supplemental oxygen. Paxlovid will be primarily administered outside the hospital setting as a five-day course of oral treatment. The ritonavir component boosts plasma concentrations through the potent and rapid inhibition of the key drug metabolizing enzyme cytochrome P450, and thus Paxlovid has a high potential to cause clinically significant interactions with other drugs metabolized through this pathway. It is critical that prescribers be aware of drugs that are absolutely contraindicated for use with Paxlovid, those that can be safely co-administered, and be informed on strategies to manage drug-to-drug interactions to prevent unnecessary denial of Paxlovid treatment or inappropriate stopping of long-term medications. On March 1st, Annals published a brief article summarizing the effects of ritonavir on drug supposition and discussing factors determining the likelihood of having a clinically significant drug interaction. The authors provide readers with resources to determine whether their patients' drugs are likely to interact with Paxlovid and strategies for the avoidance and management of potentially clinically relevant interactions. Even though COVID-19 cases are currently trending down worldwide, this is important information as infections are likely to continue to occur. Also new is the latest episode of the Annals on Call podcast. This episode discusses if, when, and how to use procalcitonin in the diagnosis of pneumonia. That brings us to the end of the new material for this podcast. I hope I've enticed you to go to annals.org to take a look at some of the new articles I've mentioned. There are ample opportunities to earn CME and MOC credit if you do. Stay well, and please return in two weeks for the next Annals' latest podcast. Thanks to Beth Jenkinson and Andrew Langman for their technical support.